0: Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best selling book, Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by ICON Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence, the icon school of medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Welcome to the Science Podcast for December 19th, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, the very last of 2014, We have David Grimm up first with a look back at some of the top stories from the year. Then Robert Kuntz joins us to discuss science's Breakthrough of the Year special issue. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site, and he's here to talk about the top stories from this year. I'm Sarah Crespi. Okay, for each of these, Dave, I'm expecting a very good explanation for what makes them so special. And for this one, I think I can guess. First of all, it's about the moon, which we can see with our naked eye. But why do you think a story about ancient lunar plumbing has been such a hit?
1: This story has two things going for it. First of all, we like stories that surprise us. and number two. I think we still are endlessly fascinated with the moon. It's our closest celestial partner. And so whenever something new turns up on the moon, despite the large amount of time we've been studying it, that's pretty neat as well.
0: Okay. So what do we learn about the moon this year?
1: If people are familiar with the large, in fact, the largest dark spot on the moon's near side, this is a place known as Oceanus procellarum. There's been a long-held hypothesis that this was caused by an impact because it's just this huge dark spot on the moon. But a new study, or at least a study that was released earlier this year, indicates that it may have actually been formed by lava. And what's really interesting about that is the researchers actually picked up evidence of plumbing below the moon's surface, some very ancient plumbing. In fact, plumbing that may go back 3.5 billion years that may have spilled a lot of this lava onto the moon's surface.
0: So that was one of our most visited stories for the year. What about this next one? This is a story that came out in early 2014, and I'm really glad we didn't have any need for this information in the past year. How to survive a nuclear explosion.
1: Well, this was also one of our most popular stories of the year. I think The headline, which you actually just stated, How to Survive a Nuclear Explosion, didn't hurt. (laughs) Obviously, something people are interested in. Maybe if we had How to Survive a Zombie Invasion, it would have done a little bit better. (laughs) But it just gets back to this idea. You woke up one morning and you saw a mushroom cloud on the horizon. (laughs) What can you do to survive?
0: And the government advice up until this point, and actually continuing even after we published this story, has been (laughs) to shelter in place. But one researcher said, let's do the math on that. What were some of the key numbers, or what did he figure out about what we should be doing?
1: Well, you know, one of the problems with sheltering in place is if there's a lot of radiation or you don't have a very good shelter, that may not be the best idea. So he ran a bunch of calculations, and he basically figured out that where you should go really depends on what your environment is and how much time you've got. You don't want to spend a whole lot of time outside if there's nuclear fallout. But if you're less than five minutes away from a much better shelter, it actually makes sense to get outside for a few minutes and go to that shelter rather than just hunker down in the perhaps less adequate shelter that you have in your home.
0: Okay. I think I know why this one made the top 10. Basically just adorableness. We're talking about what some might call the overly fluffy tail of the vampire squirrel. Kind of an odd thing to talk about because you think we'd be talking about its teeth. So what's so unique about this critter's tail?
1: This tail is a pretty remarkable tail. You can see actually a picture of the vampire squirrel. It was pretty cute on the site. But this tail is the bushiest tail of any mammal compared to its body size. This is adding a odd feature to an already odd animal. You mentioned it being a vampire squirrel. We don't know that for certain, but there is suspicion that this rodent has a taste for blood. In fact, hunters say that the squirrels will perch on low branches, jump onto a deer, gash its jugular vein, and disembowel the carcass. We have no scientific evidence for this, but it makes a great story.
0: So this one might not have gotten as much traffic as some of the other stories we've talked about here, but it's still a big story. We're talking about the genetic analysis of Bigfoot specimens. Why don't you spoil this one for us, Dave? Did we find Bigfoot?
1: (laughs) Uh, We did not find Bigfoot. But, you know, what I love about this story is we so very rarely venture into the supernatural on science. We've had stories in the past about possible alien babies and maybe even UFOs. But this is really our first foray into Bigfoot territory, and it's a really fun story. The basic idea is one brave scientist said, I've had it with all these people that claim they've seen Bigfoot. So what he did was, or what the team did, was they collected about 50 purported samples of Bigfoot hair around the world. In some of these places, it's not Bigfoot. It's Yeti or the Abominable Snowman. And they tested all these in the lab. And unfortunately, none <laughs> none were mysterious. In fact, most of them came from bears, from horses, from wolves and dogs. One was a human hair. <laughs> and there was a porcupine, a raccoon, a deer, and a cow mixed in there as well.
0: My favorite part of the story is that it actually ends up feeding into the Bigfoot fanatics, because now they have a way of proving or disproving whether or not they have Bigfoot material on their hands.
1: Yeah, that was the surprise for me with this story, was that the Bigfoot community actually took the study very well, or in fact, a lot of them did, which you wouldn't expect because it's sort of disproving a pet hypothesis. But what they're saying is, hey, science is taking us seriously, and now we've got a tool that we can go out there, and when we do find Bigfoot, we can prove it.
0: I save my favorite for last. This answers a long standing scientific conundrum. Will mice run on wheels, exercise wheels, even if they aren't in a cage? Was this one of your favorites as well, Dave? This
1: was definitely one of my favorites. This was one of my favorites even before it was written. When I saw the press release for this, I was like, we have to do this story. You know, again, getting back to the idea of surprise, this is just a huge surprise. You wouldn't expect that if you stuck a mouse running wheel out in your backyard that a lot of creatures, not just mice, but rats, shrews, and even frogs (laughs) would use it.
0: (laughs) And it's a lot, a lot. It's 200,000 uses.
1: Over three years. Yeah, That's a lot of animals exercising just seemingly for the heck of it. They're not getting a lot out of it. And that was really the take home point of the study is that when mice do this in your house, it's not just a response to stress or because they're bored, but animals just seem like they're born to run.
0: I like this one so much. I went to the paper and I watched a slug using the wheel.
1: And there's a very cute video you can see of a mouse running on a wheel outside on the site. (laughs) Of its own volition. That's right. So that's the five we're sharing with you today, but we've actually got a top 10 list on the website. So five more stories, including our most popular story of the year.
0: Now I want to try something a little new. I found some of the most intriguing sounds from this year's online news catalog, and I've made sort of a little audio quiz. For each sound, Dave, can you tell me two things? Can you identify the sound? And do you have any idea what the story was about? <laughs> so this is kind of a memory test plus an animal slash human slash machine
2: identity test. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> okay,
0: let's start with sound number one. I think this series of sounds is an appropriate opener. Hello. Hello.
1: Hello. 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 This is faintly jogging my memory, but I believe this was a story about how much you can tell about a person just in the way they say hello, whether they are friendly or potentially dangerous.
0: You're (laughs) definitely right about it's the snap judgments that people make in the first 200 milliseconds of them talking. And they did evaluate things like whether they would be attractive or how they would feel about that person. So you got the number one right. (laughs) Okay.
1: One point for Dave.
0: All right. Next, we have something that's more of a sound pattern.
1: Okay, you've got me, Sarah. I have no idea. I'll
0: give you a clue. This might mean something to you if you were a parent and your child was making this noise.
1: Oh, I remember this very vaguely. It's something about your child's learning ability from the way they make sort of synchronous or non-synchronous sounds.
0: That's right. These researchers looked at whether or not a three to four-year-old could synchronize with a drum beat, and then if they could or they couldn't, they found that it correlated with their language skills later in life. Good, you're doing really good. All right, next one. Okay, enough people. Let's move on to the animal sounds. What do you think this sound is, Dave?
1: That sounds a lot like a dolphin to me, Sarah. And I think this is a story about how both dolphins and whales squeal when they're happy. That's correct. Right (laughs) on the
0: nose. See, I knew you'd be better at the animal ones. (laughs) Basically, this was the first study to show evidence that dolphins and whales have excitement and that they express it with their vocalizations. And I'm excited I got it right. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's make this a little tougher. Uh Uh-oh. Can you recognize this sound?
1: Is it a cricket?
0: Close. (laughs) Really close. It's a moth. Okay. I did not know moths could make sound before reading this story.
1: I am still lost.
0: Well, first of all, Moths do make sound. They have ultrasonic mating calls. Oh. And this one is, this moth doesn't just emit a mating call, but it also has a back-off buddy call. And so it actually threatens potential competitors away from mates. And that's what this study was looking at.
1: I'm more of a dolphin person than a moth person. <laughs> okay.
0: All right, last one. And this is from my favorite sound-centric story of the year. It came out in February.
1: Can I have a hint?
0: It's more than one animal.
1: Oh, is this a story about measuring sounds in places like forests where you pick up potentially hundreds or thousands of sounds and trying to see if you can identify each animal by the sound that it makes?
0: Yeah, so this was actually a story about analyzing the sounds of ecosystems. And in this case, this is the sound of a healthy reef. Those noises, those grindy noises, are all the happy fish chewing on the coral and keeping it healthy. (laughs) All right. Thanks for being such a sport, Dave.
1: Oh, I did okay. Not great, but okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So that's it for all our end-of-the-year fun times. What else is on the site this week, Dave?
1: Well, Sarah, we've got a story about how ibuprofen use can increase lifespan. Also a story about why piles of rubble spontaneously combusted in the aftermath of the Japanese earthquake in 2011. And for Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about why the National Institutes of Health has decided to cancel its massive children's study. Also a story about the geography of plagiarism. So be sure to check out all these stories, plus our top 10 list, plus the best science images of the year On our site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah.
0: David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Were there any headlines this year in the scientific realm that reached out and grabbed you? Were you shocked, astonished, and astounded by some miracle of modern science? Each year, science's editors and news staff must go through all the great findings and mysteries solved and pick out the top one. I spoke with Robert Kuntz, the editor of our Breakthrough of the Year section, about this year's big winners and losers.
2: Well, we've been announcing Breakthroughs of the Year since 1996. Before that, we did Molecule of the Year, but that was sort of limiting, and I think we ran out of molecules after a while. It's a product of the uh, news department in collaboration with other parts of the magazine, the um, editors who edit the scientific papers. Over the year, we pay attention to what's going on. We keep track of our favorite choices. Toward the end of the year, we all get together and have a series of meetings in which we toss out a whole bunch of ideas and uh, narrow them down to 10, a main breakthrough and nine runners-up.
0: And there was a new part of the process this year, right, where they introduced this list, some parts of this list to the public?
2: Yes. This year, we let visitors to our website vote on their choices for the Breakthrough of the Year. We took our long list, put it online, and saw what the people thought the breakthrough should be.
0: I thought this was pretty interesting to watch because it unfolded over a couple weeks. It started out with a really strong, strong contender, and then that changed over time. Who won out in the end?
2: It's true. We had a sort of a horse race going on, a lot of back and forth. But in the end, the winner was the expanded genetic alphabet. The scientists in Southern California added a couple of base pairs to DNA. Now, if you remember from uh, high school biology or college biology, DNA has four base pairs that it uses to encode for proteins, right, which are uh, abbreviated A, T, C, and G. Well, this year, scientists have added a couple of new ones called for maximum mysterious effect X and Y. People had added extra artificial base pairs to DNA before, and they'd even managed to get it to reproduce using the cell's mechanisms, but they'd never done this before in living cells. In this case, they actually did that. They took E. coli, the uh, you know standard go-to experimental bacterium, and modified it to have this special six-base-pair DNA. They didn't do anything with it. In principle, you could use these extra base pairs to build up all kinds of new proteins that aren't found in uh, normal living organisms. They aren't doing that yet, but the mere fact that they've created this entirely artificial organism different from anything that exists was enough to catch our readers' attention— It certainly is a worthy breakthrough choice.
0: But it's not ours.
2: No, that's not the one the editors went with.
0: But let's go to some of the runners-up now. Some of these have a biological flavor to them, others on the more physical sciences. Let's start with stem cells being turned into beta cells.
2: Okay. Beta cells are cells in the pancreas that produce insulin. And insulin, as everybody knows, is really responsible for allowing the body to metabolize sugar. If something goes wrong with your beta cells, you get diabetes, and there are a couple of different types of that. Sometimes it's an autoimmune disorder. The body itself attacks the beta cells. Scientists have been trying for a long time to make replacement beta cells. They figure if you could find a way for the body to make new ones or to create new ones that you could then place in the body in some way, Then you might actually be able to fix what's wrong with people who have diabetes. This year, two new recipes for doing that were published. That was uh, one of the runners-up.
0: Okay. And how about something more space-related? What are CubeSats?
2: Okay. They're these little tiny satellites. They are cubes, a lot of them. They're about a foot on a side, 30 centimeters And for a long time, they were student projects. It was a way of undergraduates to be able to design their own little satellites. And they could be launched, and they wouldn't stay up very long, but they were cheap to do. Of course, as everything gets more and more miniaturized, these things become more and more powerful. And it turns out that it's reached the point where you can do real science with them. They become really useful. Also, there are a lot more ways of getting them into space. One way is just you launch them up with uh, astronauts who are going to the space station, and you just kind of drop them off on the way. And it turns out that these things have better and better cameras. They have better and better sensors. Sometimes you don't need ultra-high-resolution cameras. You need lots of cameras looking at the Earth, for example, for Earth-observing satellites to do various types of studies. They've taken off in a small way, little by little. But we think that this year is when it really first became possible to do a lot of science with a lot of these little CubeSat satellites.
0: Let's move on to something a little bit more historical. This is the finding that perhaps the oldest representational art may not be in the well-known caves of Europe.
2: That's right. These are caves on the island of Sulawesi in Indonesia. They were discovered in the 1950s. Local people found these caves and found that there were drawings, paintings on the inside. There were little spray-painted outlines of people's hands. You take red pigment in your mouth, put your hand on the cave wall— And then blow, and then you get a little handprint, which is a little stencil. And there were also pictures of these strange pigs and animals called babirusas, also known as pig deer. Well, for a long time, when they were first discovered, the experts just sort of uh, thought they were about 10,000 years old. That's pretty impressive, prehistoric art, great. But it's nowhere near as old as the cave paintings in Europe, which are 40,000 years old. This year, some scientists actually went in and did some dating using uranium decay, and they found out that actually these Indonesian caves are as old, at least as old, as the ones in Europe. They are four times as old as as people thought. They're about 40,000 years old, 35,000 to 40,000 years old. Why is that significant? It's significant because a lot of people thought that the uh, European art efflorescence marked some sort of new stage in the development of the human mind. The idea that you could represent things by drawing them is not intuitively obvious. And until then, the only other art anybody had known about, the earliest art anybody had known about, was geometric scratches on rocks and shells, and they've been found in Africa. They've been found in other places. But the first pictures were found in Europe, and people thought, okay, well, Europe is where this new development happened. Turns out it was happening in Indonesia, too. So now that raises the possibility that maybe people had already developed this symbolic sense before they spread out of Africa 60,000 or so years ago, and they took it with them to the rest of the world.
0: The last runner-up we're going to talk about has to do with an improvement in the way computers are made. What are neuromorphic chips?
2: We know that there have been huge, huge developments in computer chips. They get faster, and they get more powerful, and the processing speed goes up, and the memory capacity goes up. But the basic design is still the same as when um, polymathic scientist Jan von Neumann first came up with them, the sketched out design for computer chips back in the 1940s. But what's going on now? at IBM and a couple of other companies is that researchers there are working on a totally new type of computer chip that's more like the way the human brain works. Normal computer chips are really good at arithmetic. And by doing enough arithmetic, fast enough, you can have spreadsheets and all the different kinds of software that we have nowadays. It all boils down to these sort of arithmetic and logical operations. But that's not really good for things that require a lot of data processing, like vision. Our computers just don't see very well because they just can't crunch numbers fast enough. So the idea is, what if you could actually make chips more like the human brain? The human brain has no problem with vision. It's one of the things it does. And its secret is lots of networking, just lots of networking. Our brains have about 100 billion cells that are linked with 100 trillion synapses. These brain-like or neuromorphic chips are designed to work the way the brain does. And this year, a couple of different companies rolled out mass-produced, standardized neuromorphic chips.
0: Okay, so let's stop there with the runners-up, and if anybody wants to learn more about them, we can, they can go online. Let's move over to science's breakthrough of the year, which is not the same as the people's choice. What did, what did science's editors and newswriters pick this year?
2: We went with sort of a popular choice this time. It's been in the news recently. It's Europe's Rosetta mission to the comet known as 67P slash churyomov gerasimenko I'm not going to say that again. I'll call it 67P. Okay. This is a genuine first in planetary science. You don't get them very often. Missions have landed on moons, they've landed on asteroids, but uh, nobody's ever landed on a comet before. This was in the news just last month. A little lander called Philae dropped down from the um, main Rosetta orbiter and landed on this comet. Now, it didn't do a very good landing, unfortunately. You know, it bounced. It landed in a shadowy place where it couldn't recharge its solar cells. So, unfortunately, it ran out of power within a couple of days. So it didn't get to do all the experiments it wanted to do. That's not our breakthrough. Let me tell you how we think about breakthroughs. I like breakthroughs that either solve a problem that people have wondered about for a long time, or they open the door to a lot of potential new research. The Rosetta mission is going to open the door to a lot of potential new research. What it's doing is it's orbiting the comet, and it's going to stay with it. Comet 67P comes from a part of the solar system called the Kuiper Belt, which is outside Neptune. It's one of those icy bodies. Pluto is probably the best known now that it's no longer a planet. One of those icy bodies that represent, you know, rubble left over from the early solar system. The comet comes as close to the sun as about halfway between the orbits of Earth and Mars. And when it gets closest to the sun, which it will be doing within the next couple months, it'll start to turn into a real comet, spewing out jets and doing all those cometary things. When it does that, it'll give off gases that the uh, Rosetta orbiter is going to study for months and months. The orbiter will also be taking pictures of the comet's surface. The whole idea is to try to figure out what this comet is made of. One of the big questions that scientists wonder about is these Kuiper Belt comets, are they pristine? Are they really made of the original material from the solar system, in which case they'll tell us a lot about where the Earth and the other planets came from? Or have they been altered? Because every time you go around the Sun, you can have chemical reactions. By uh, studying the jets of gas, by studying the materials on the surface, maybe we'll be able to tell how much of the material is actually original and how much has been formed through these chemical reactions over the uh, billions of years that the comet's been in orbit.
0: So it'll tell us more than just about this comet, but about how much we can learn from it and other ones like it.
2: Right. Now, one thing that people have really wondered about is, for example, did comets bring the water to Earth? Comets are mostly ice, ice and a lot of rocks. I remember at one point people were sort of envisioning this scenario in which comets crashed into the Earth and brought the oceans. Well, it turns out that early results indicate that the picture may not be quite that simple because studying the isotopes of hydrogen in this comet, they found out that they're not the same as the isotopes of water in in Earth's oceans. So maybe our water didn't come from comets. Maybe it came from asteroids. Maybe it came from someplace else. The big results still lie ahead. Right now, the breakthrough was putting that orbiter there in a position to stick with that comet as it goes around the sun and study it really, really closely.
0: So that's the breakthrough and some of the runners-up. I want to talk a little bit about the other parts of this special issue, particularly the breakdowns of the year. What was the number one breakdown, Robert?
2: Ebola. Yeah. Ebola. It had to be Ebola. There have been Ebola outbreaks in the world before but nothing like this. It started almost exactly a year ago at the end of December. People in West Africa started developing this disease, which had popped up in other parts of Africa, but never in that particular area. And it took a long time for the rest of the world to realize what was going on and how serious it was. Even as late as the spring, a lot of the medical authorities, even scientists, thought that this was just what they call a routine outbreak In the past, you could sort of contain these things by tracing the contacts, by isolating the patients, and it would just die out. Before this year, about 2,500 people had died of Ebola ever. We've already had many more than that just in this year alone. It got really serious really fast. Even then, though, most people outside Africa didn't pay a lot of attention until Westerners started coming down with the disease. But it took much too long for the rest of the world to respond. The epidemic got much worse than it had to. And it's going to be um, months, at least, perhaps even longer before we finally manage to get this under control. For all those reasons, it's a horrible thing to happen. And the people who could have controlled it earlier on weren't aware of exactly what was going on. We call that our breakdown of the year.
0: Well, there are a couple other parts of this special issue that look ahead and look behind. What else is in here?
2: Well, we've got what we call areas to watch, a few different things to look for in 2015. And just to keep ourselves honest, we have a little scorecard. We say how well our predictions for 2014 turned out when we did them last year. We also have more runners-up, and we have a few little runners-up for the breakdown, too.
0: Great. All right. Thanks, Robert, so much.
2: My pleasure. It's always fun doing this.
0: Robert Koontz is a deputy news editor for science. You can read about the breakthrough, runners-up, and more at www.sciencemag.org special B-T-O-Y 2014. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org, or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.